Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. My guest today is Mr Robert Murray, who's the author of The Grocer's Boy, A Slice of His Life in 1950 Scotland, and The Spirit of Robbie Burns. And today, Robbie is going to be discussing with us his five favourite books, the five texts which have left the greatest impact on him over the years. Thanks for joining us today, Robbie. Thank you, Tom. Now, the first book that you've chosen is Flight Path by Peter Maysfield. What is it about this book particularly which has meant a lot to you? I think the uh, background to this for me is the fact that this gentleman, Peter Maysfield, by the way, a cousin of uh, John Maysfield, (laughs) as it happens, but it was nothing to do with that that uh, made me pick this book off the, the library shelf. This man went to Cambridge University. He got his degree in engineering. He chose a path to go to become an apprentice in an aircraft factory. He wanted to, this was his uh, uh, passion, uh, flying. And he went back to the the very roots of the engineering world as an apprentice. He started writing aeronautical pieces uh, while he was doing this. And in fact, one of the things he did was he reorganized the entire aircraft recognition systems for the for the whole of Britain uh, just prior to and the early stages of the Second World War. He rewrote because the aircraft recognition system across the country was in, in uh, various uh, elements or various uh, stages of development. He pulled it all together and made a, a huge impact in, in, in improving that. He wrote uh, regular aero news items and through these aero news items he was drafted in to help Lord Beaverbrook, no less, who was working as a one-man committee <laughs> with uh, Churchill. And Peter Maysfield became uh, a, a working colleague of Lord Beaverbrook. And the, the, the challenge they had, and I, I found this amazing, that the, the project was to plan the future of civil aviation for, the, for Britain after the Second World War. And so while all the bombs and the troubles were going on, here we have this committee uh, working away on on this. Peter Maysfield was sent to the USA and he swatted absolutely everything up about flying, aircraft, future designs, uh, the whole, every element of flying in it, and came back to the UK with all of this uh, and built up the future policy, basically, for the, this country in civil aviation. The, uh, <laughs> and so this man was dedicated to flying. He eventually became uh, chairman of BAA, uh, British uh, Aircraft Authority. And uh, he, was, he, was, he, he was not re-elected. It was something to do with the fact that he had very strong views about where the third Heathrow uh, airfield airstrip should be built. And for some strange reason, some political uh, elements in there, he was not reappointed, which was very sad. But there's a very interesting story about Peter Maysfield, if I may have time just to say something about this. He used to fly uh, uh, his small plane uh, wherever he went on business. And on this one occasion, he had to go to Inverness as he was leaving Inverness Airport, a man approached him and said, I'm, I've lost my train connections, can you give me a lift? Because Peter Maysfield was on his way back to the south of England. 
and um, this gentleman said, fine, not a problem. On the way, there was a, a storm, and uh, Peter Maysfield decided to land at Montrose Airport. And just as they were coming into the approaches, in front of Peter Maysfield was a biplane, which wings collapsed, the plane plummeted to the ground, the man he was giving a lift to, sitting in behind him, screamed. And Peter Maysfield turned round, and there was no man there. <laughs> it turns out that Montrose Airfield, from the early days of pioneering RFC days, Montrose was a training base, and this pilot uh, had, his name was Desmond Arthur, he, he was the pilot, and he was lost, and there were two, or I think two or three inquiries as to the cause of the accident which resulted in his death. Peter Maysfield was able to say he'd seen this plane, and this was something that uh, came back from history, that Desmond Arthur uh, had died, and he was trying to tell the world how he had died. Uh, the spooky thing about this was the flight that was being made by Peter Maysfield was the 27th of May 1963, exactly to the day 50 years after Desmond Arthur's crash and killed. <laughs> so Peter Maysfield was a... I, I admired his... His, his, uh, his path, he calls it the flight path, but his own path and what he did and his contribution all through these difficult times and, and how he made himself such a, a, a huge authority. Uh, sadly, he fell downstairs and, uh, in an accident at home and died prematurely uh, in his early 90s. But uh, I thought it was a, uh, an excellent story of a man who was dedicated to his his passion of uh, flight. Britain's aviation history has been an uh, important subject um, for which has been addressed by many books. What is it you feel particularly about Flight Path that makes it stand out against other books of this type? I think his, uh, he had to <clears throat> Working with Lord Beaverbrook and Churchill, one can imagine <laughs> the, uh, the the challenge and the pressure and the uh, demanding uh, circumstances within which he had to work, and the the extremely high levels of his uh, his technical know-how, his technical knowledge. He reached the highest level probably in the world, and one man, and he made it his mission to to get to that level, and uh, it was a a huge plus. He was eventually knighted, and uh, for his uh, efforts and all of this. But it was it was his determination and his uh, personal demands on himself to reach that high level. Now the next book that you've chosen is *The Fox and the Flies* by Charles Van Onselen. Interesting book. Uh, what particularly um, attracted you to it? Well, this is an entirely different uh, story. But, and the, the character uh, is all about a man by the name of Joseph Silver. This is a, a fascinating story because Charles Van Onselen, a South African historian, by accident had seen something on a desk in his office in Johannesburg relating to the name Joseph Silver. And I think uh, Charles Van Onselen had been perhaps tinkering with some ideas about uh, characters. But this, this story starts 
where Silver, and he had many names, this man, Silver, uh, had started off as a... Uh, he became uh, a nasty piece of work. <laughs> he was a burglar, a gun runner, a jewel thief, a rapist, a safe cracker, you name it. Uh, <laughs> and strangely enough, a police informer. But he was also a psychopath and a racketeer. He, he was a, a nasty piece of work. Uh, the author of this book has traced John, Joseph Silver, having left uh, Eastern Europe, came to London, and he was able to track all of the Joseph Silver's movements by some very clever means. And through the 1888-1889 uh, period, uh, this Joseph Silver, otherwise alias Joseph Liss or List, uh, moved around in shady circles in London. For some reason he left London and he went off to the States and it became clear that he was trading in England with uh, the thieves, gun runners, burglars, rapists and one of his main uh, sources of his income was the shady dealings with uh, human slave labour. We hear something of that these days with slave labour and um, the sex trade and so on and so forth. And this was he, this was what Joseph Silver was doing in the eighteen the late nineteenth uh, century. He actually in in the U.S. became a police informer as well. So he was he was a very clever man living on his wits. He he's. He eventually uh, went to South Africa, and, and all of this trading and his racketeering went on in South Africa. He always seemed to uh, move for some strange reason, but the, the author managed to track him down eventually to the Argentine. Later on, he was actually captured in 1918 and shot as a spy. Probably could or could not have been a spy, but he was shot at the age of 50. And what's intriguing about this for me is that the author had done a huge amount of research and I was, I was just so uh, impressed by the amount of uh, research that he'd done. In the last chapter, he places Joseph Silver as the man in London who's the most likely person to have been Jack the Ripper. And everything fitted I don't think the author himself knew where he was going with the story, but had he, when he'd done all the research and worked exactly everything through inch by inch, uh, the inescapable fact was that this was the man. So what appeals to me about this story is uh, a, a nasty piece of work. I'm not impressed by him at all, but I'm impressed by the research done by the author. And, and what I liked about it was standing out in the last chapter was, of course, Jack the Ripper, and there have been many books written and theories about Jack the Ripper, but and I haven't read them all, but this was such a, uh, a compelling background story of one man who, uh, for me, seems to be the one that f f ticks most of the boxes uh, as being Jack the Ripper. Now, as you rightly say, books about Jack the Ripper have been plentiful over the years. What is it about Van Onselen's evidence that you find particularly persuasive? His, uh, his detail, uh, the, for, the forensic uh, approach to the detail, and the, uh, he's, he's spent so long in, in 
compiling this, this, this detail, the records, he's gone back to shipping records in the United States, in Argentina and London. He's got uh, bills of lading and he's got uh, uh, passenger lists. All that was done painstakingly to bring uh, this book together. So that that's quite a, I thought that was quite a feat. It's a huge piece of work. So there's a change of pace with the next book that you've chosen, and that is The Man Who Would Not Die by Lucky Herschel McKee. Different kind of book. <laughs> yes. Lucky Herschel McKee, uh, born 1897 in, in America. Young boy at the time when he was playing around on his uh, contraptions, scooters and uh, gadgets he liked to do daredevil things with. He was always in trouble. As a youngster, he did uh, amazing things and took huge risks. He was having uh, scrapes and bumps and bruises as a young boy. But he became uh, intrigued by the war that was going on in Europe. And being a young, wild, fearless youngster in the United States, he, he wanted to get into the action in Europe. And he, as many uh, US uh, flying uh, personalities wanted, he got into the Lafayette Flying Corps in, um, in, in France. And he became one of their ace killers. He had uh, a greater number of uh, kills than, than any of his colleagues. And he became uh, uh, really excellent at this job. He, he, um, he crashed and was captured and uh, escaped. And eventually found himself uh, in, in the trenches. So he was a man who didn't need to be in Europe, didn't need to be fighting a war necessarily. He'd gone off to uh, join his, uh, his dream of flying and the one place to do it was in, in, the, <laughs> in the First World War. Having escaped and gone through the trenches, he had seen a lot of nasty things. And later on, after the war, he went back to racing, into car motor racing. And the reason he's called the man who wouldn't die it's not because of how he managed only to escape in the European situation, but on his racing track in Minneapolis, he was fearless. And it, on these races, uh, the driver has a co-driver, and they spend many years as a co-driver before you actually are able to take to the wheel. He did all of this and was in several serious accidents, uh, nearly breathing his last on, on the many occasions. So he gave up the racing and, and went back to flying. He met a friend and uh, comforted himself with some flying. When I got to the end of this book, it was so sad. He had a daughter and he hadn't seen much of his family life. He'd, he'd, he'd done all the things that he wanted to do. His wife and his daughter, he hadn't seen much of them. And uh, at the end, when he died and you get to the stage in the book when this happens, uh, I was left with this huge feeling of a, a huge spirited man with a, a huge heart and uh, all his uh, personality bound up into one thing. And when, when, the, when the story came, uh, I, was quite <laughs> I was quite saddened and quite emotional about the death of Lucky Herschel McKee. At long last, the poor man died, but 
uh, he had a huge history of uh, near scrapes and uh, it was such a sad a sad ending because I, I I wanted him to keep going I wanted him to keep doing all the marvelous adventurous things in life that he that he'd been pursuing and uh, only one thing stopped him was old age <laughs> finally death but I think he would have kept going uh, <laughs> forever if he'd had the chance with American involvement in the Second World War uh, being the subject of so many books, I think that sometimes American involvement in the Great War is a subject that can be overlooked. How do you feel McKee's book rates in comparison with other books of that type? I haven't read too many of them, Tom, to be perfectly honest, but um, uh, I think it's it's very much an individual story. Of course, we, we, we've all read the um, adventures and the uh, the conflict and the mass, the mass um, starvations and mass poverty and the mass movement of people brought about by the Second World War. Uh, but this was just one man who was born to be a daredevil. Uh, I could see that in the very early stages of the story. And, but he channeled it. He channeled it into making something of his life. And that's what I think is a different take on a story. Well, we're making a return to South Africa with your next book, which is Rogue, the Inside Story of SARS by Johan van Loggerenberg and Adrian Lackey. Yes, Tom, the um, SARS, the Inside Story, uh, SARS is South African Revenue Services. Uh, I have a great deal of um, emotion when I talk about South Africa. I've visited South Africa on many occasions, more than a dozen occasions probably. I was first there when my friend back home in Carnoustie invited me and uh, he showed me around South Africa, uh, took me on a great trip. I began to learn more and more about the country and of course I have been. Uh, I went to Robben Island. For my part I was interested to see the cell where Nelson Mandela had been incarcerated in, uh, for 27 years. Um, through Alan and, and my, my journeys and my subsequent trips to South Africa, I began to pick up a lot of the pluses uh, about South Africa. A marvellous country, beautiful countryside, great variations of uh, uh, geographical uh, uh, interest, uh, a vibrant country. And the population today go about their business all very happily working away uh, on day-to-day street level in shops and restaurants. It's a wonderful place to be. Sadly, behind the scenes, I describe it as a South African diamond with a flaw in the, in the, in the middle somewhere. Uh, the diamond is the climate, uh, the, the quality of life. Sadly, there's a whole raft of bad things that are happening in South Africa. We know, we hear about the corruption so we have a level of uh, national government, provincial government, municipalities, but we've also got a layer of tribal chiefs. If they don't like the laws and they don't like the, uh, the discipline of these laws, they'll go their own way. So SARS, to come back to this, was a unit inside uh, the, the government. And there was an elite crime-busting unit within SARS. The purpose of this unit was to suss out rogue dealings uh, money changing hands and I'm not talking small money it's massive money and there was tobacco imports there was 
uh, computer frauds, a whole range of highly uh, lucrative scams that some people were getting up to. But the crime-busting unit was intriguing because the unit was subsequently and uh, very carefully dismantled by government bodies and, and agencies working behind the scenes to discredit this crime-busting unit because it was getting too close to the truth. <laughs> I think in many cases that is, that is the case. So by means of television, Sunday Times exposures, all of this being false, talk about fake news as uh, we hear uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of fake news was being pumped out into, into the world in South Africa and, and beyond that, no doubt. But this was a tale of a dedicated team who were actually doing a, an, an, an exceedingly clever dangerous job. Some of the people in that unit were ex, ex-military people with, uh, with honours and, uh, and, and bravery and seeking. Uh, some of them didn't see their families for months on end. They were working undercover, cutting out the corruption and the crime and uh, the nasty businesses that were going on. Sadly, at the end of all of this, uh, the people inside that unit lost their jobs. Uh, they were discredited. Uh, all this publicity that was pumped out fundamentally uh, wiped out the elite crime-busting unit. They were discredited, sacked, and never really would find themselves a job again in South Africa. Now, South Africa is a a country with an enormously sophisticated cultural and social history. Did Van Loggerenberg's book encourage you to read more about it, or was it somewhere that you already had a, a, a deep interest in in terms of literature? I, th- I think it put uh, Tom. I think it put uh, a factual situation into the context of the wider world of South Africa. It gave me some idea of the mechanics of how a properly run and believe. I I am aware that South Africa has got a, a very well-written constitution and everything they have on paper is superbly well-written. Well it's, the, it's the execution of all of that, that that is the problem. And SARS was an excellent, uh, as, as indeed I think uh, on paper, as good as our revenue services. But this unit was fighting a dangerous game. And so it gave me uh, the inside mechanics of how this unit was working against the wider picture of what we know. So yes, it was an insight into that. It, it confirmed to me, that, yes, there is a problem. Yes, probably the politicians who were at, uh, in, in some corrupt uh, aspects of this w- were fearful that this unit was getting a bit too close to their own doorstep. So that, f- for me, that was a nice inside story. And for your final book, we take a return a bit closer to home with the Spirit of Angus by John McGregor, a historical tale. Yes, John McGregor's book uh, is all about the uh, f- the 5th Battalion of the uh, the Black Watch. The 5th Battalion was uh, a battalion made up of territorials. I read this book because <laughs> one of my senior colleagues in my workplace had actually been uh, awarded the military medal uh, for his uh, work in the Second World War 
particularly uh, El Alamein <coughs> and and the work of the uh, the battalion Fifth Battalion Black Watch. I casually mentioned to him one day that my uncle Jim uh, had died at El Alamein. Strangely enough, on the the, the day after my birthday, I was two <laughs> when he died, and I had this connection with this Uncle Jim. He'd come to see me when I was a two-year-old baby in Barry, <laughs> near Carnoustie here, and I've always had this connection. My mum actually dug a, a suit out of a wardrobe once and said it was Uncle Jim's suit, uh, and I wore it because it fitted me to a tee when I, <laughs> when I was going to church. Um, the story of the 5th Battalion was the origins when they were... a. a collection of young fit men who wanted to go to war in the, at the Second World War. They wanted to fight. They started off running through woods and doing exercises, uh, marching and uh, exercises in Bankery. They came to Barry Burden near Carnoustie. I uh, read the story of how, in actual fact, they had no money, practically no money, as they were in this embryonic stage. Uh, they my Uncle Jim was a carpenter to trade. It doesn't say it in the book, but I know that in the book it says they had to make beds for the officers in tents. They had no sleeping quarters. They had to borrow Dixies. Uh, you'll know what I mean by that. It's a large cooking pots. They had to go to friends in Dundee who were in the grocery or the butchery trade and, and beg and borrow. <laughs> Not borrow, but beg for food. And and so it was all on a shoestring. This small group eventually uh, moved from running around the woods with wooden rifles, actually found themselves being trained in in England, ready to fight. They were they went to Camberley. They were trained and they were uh, spruced up into a fighting unit. They went on the um, SS uh, Empress of Australia. The story. They sail from Liverpool. They don't know where they're going, but we know in the book they're going to Egypt. Uh, a fascinating bit about this is there were, I think, the SS Liverpool, uh, Empress of uh, Australia, uh, could originally take uh, about 1,500 passengers and 500 crew, but the troops they carried on this trip to uh, Egypt was three and a half thousand on board. So they took turns of sleeping on deck and they, 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 they practiced their fire, fighting, uh, firing skills, shooting skills while they were, while they were training. Uncle Jim uh, was killed, as I said earlier on. This story gives me the whole picture of a group of young men with no skills other than their own uh, jobs which they'd worked at, they wanted to. They wanted to fight. It, it's a trace of going from practically nothing into being a unit which fitted in on the battle night at, at El Alamein. And some of the elements of the story, and I, one of the things I'd never learned until I read the Spirit of Angus, was that the troops, the Black Watch, and other foot soldiers marched the whole night before the El Alamein barrage uh, happened. They walked all night. They had to march three strides. Uh, three strides was two yards. They knew you had, they had to walk three miles. They had to count these uh, strides on the way. They dug themselves in a pit 
two men to a to a pit uh, in the sand, covered themselves up, and they lay there for a whole day. And the next day, uh, when it was dark, they were up, and the barrage started about nine forty on the night of the uh, the twenty third, and. Uncle Jim was there. So I've got a personal uh, tale that I like to know what Uncle Jim did before, during and at the end of this whole adventure. And that's what the book is, is all about. It, it encapsulates, as it says, the spirit of Angus, a group of young men who gave their lives, many of them gave their lives, uh, and this is a, a nice story. Uh, strangely enough, Uncle Jim's brother, Tom, was in the Navy and he was in a ship at Sierra Leone. And when he had heard that the Empress of Australia was uh, docking for stores and fuel, he realised his brother was on the ship. He got special allowance to get on and meet up. The two brothers met and that was the last time these two brothers uh, saw each other, both in a wartime situation. So it's a family connection for me. Uh, Uncle Jim's uh, a hero. He was the Batman for the Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, a straightforward young man uh, died at the age of 21. And this story gives me the entire story about the 5th Battalion and all of their exploits, but it's not in the book about my Uncle Jim, obviously, but I'm able to relate Uncle Jim's experiences and his adventures within that context. Well, Scotland has a long and proud military history, and Angus is most certainly no exception. What is it about MacGregor's book that makes you feel that you've glimpsed that very particular insight into what life was like during the, the conflict? I think it's the characters, it's the strength of characters, the determination and the, uh, the controlled professionalism. We don't we hear today, we talk today about career paths and things that people do and they're on this career or that career. But we've got to remember in, in the Second World War, the collection of people put together had their own professions back home, whether they were desk-bound or manual people. Uh, woven together as a group of people, the characters and the strength of these characters and the relationships that they built up, we all know in wartime that must be different. They're facing a common foe and, and everything's different. But it was a huge, uh, I think for me, I'm not saying this doesn't exist in other parts of the UK, but for me, knowing the names and seeing the Scottish names coming up and the characters and the strength of characters uh, is a... One can see that that is at the root of a victory for any battle. And, and that's exactly what happened here. One thing that suggests itself from looking at all five of your favourite books um, is the commonality of the biographical and autobiographical element of them. Now, is the biography a genre that means a lot to you? I've read, I've read fiction, uh, of course. Uh, you know, everything from Conan Doyle and uh, Neville Shute in the young days. And, uh, and, and yes, I have. I keep coming back to uh, autobiographical uh, books because th this this is a wide selection of um, of tales to tell, and I just like hearing about people, and I like to know what makes people tick, and and, and uh, whether it's Peter Maysfield and his his attention to detail and making himself the best authority in the world on in civil aviation, uh, 
is one way of putting it. Uh, the people in the rogue unit you have to admire the, the, the risks that these people took. Uh, there's no doubt Spirit of Angus is a collection of people. Uh, uh, and of course I then come on to Herschel McKee. <laughs> he was a, a flamboyant character in, in every, and I, I, I was as sad for him as anybody else, although he was a, a real adventurous man. Uh, these people have all got a huge contribution. Uh, when I come to the Fox and the Flies, it's about a nasty piece of work. But what appeals to me there is not the character in the book, but appeals to me the, the author who put together such a, a detailed analysis of that, uh, of that story. Well, Robbie, it's often said that truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. But I think today you've shown us it can also be informative, interesting and exciting. Thank you very much for taking the time to share with us your five favourite books. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Robbie's books, The Grocer's Boy and The Spirit of Robbie Burns, are available to buy from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon.